1900s and the early 1900s especially, almost every community seemed to have a balladeer that uh, wrote about the lurid details of the murders that happened in their community, in their neighborhood. And over the years, a lot of those songs that were written got altered, they got added to, things were taken away, and it became a little unclear who the murder was, who the song was actually referring to. And that's where the guest today comes in. Uh, Richard H. Underwood is the William L. Matthews, Jr. Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky. He's a fellow of the American Bar Foundation and the Life Fellow of the Kentucky Bar Foundation. And he is also a member of the Kentucky Supreme Court uh, Evidence Rules Review Commission, which perhaps makes him uniquely qualified to review the evidence of these 100-year-old murders and match them up to songs that were written subsequent to that. Uh, Professor Underwood is already the winner of two independent publisher book awards, or Ippies, for Crime Song, and I'm sure that there are more on the way. I've almost finished the book. I'm not, I've not completed it, but I've almost finished it. So uh, please welcome Professor Richard Underwood. Well, thank you. This is, this is uh, and I even have my own brand I brought. Uh, uh, I didn't write that music, but I think I really appreciate it. Uh, no, I, this, is, this is fun. I've been looking forward to it. And uh, I was trying to think, uh, every time I do this, I do it a little bit differently. And I had a review on Amazon that has inspired me. I've taught uh, law school at the University of Kentucky. This will be my 38th year coming up. In the, the acknowledgments of the book, I'm trying to explain why I'm writing a book like this. And I've got another one coming out in the fall about uh, murders in New York City, uh, the, the defense lawyers, the prosecutors, the judges, the, the police, who are always up to all sorts of corrupt practices, in the 1890s, the Gilded Age, and I uh, was actually able to collect a lot of material for that. My methodology is not very scientific over the years. Uh, I've just got an interest in something, and so I build a stack up of things that I collect. And the hard part is, uh, trying to decide when you're actually going to get around to synthesizing and put it in the book. So I've, I've been inspired recently, I guess. But I say back here, this has been one of several somewhat unconventional books I've been working on over my years as a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. I say unconventional because academic legal writing is still dominated by the student-edited law review article in the invaluable but dry text or treatise. I say I've worked on it over the years because it's been a process of slowly collecting my thoughts and materials about ballads and about true crime in the late 19th and early 20th century, amid all of the unrewarding distractions that one has to put up with in academia, like committee meetings and faculty meetings and such. Here near the end, and this was what prompted the punchline in the review, I said, here near the end, I've decided to have a little fun as my limited time permits, I plan to wrap it all up with a couple more books about trials and trial lawyers, detectives, doctors, and even a grave robber or two. I'll try to keep the interested reader, hopefully there will be one or two, posted on my author's page of the publisher's website. And this brings me for the task of thanking folks who helped me. And of course, last but not least, my wife, who is Shadeland House Press, if you're wondering where that huge uh, publishing outfit is located. 
It was the business of talking about getting near the end uh, that must have prompted this reader. He gave me a great review. I like it. He also said, and this should help sales, he says, warning, this book is for adults only. Contains extreme violent or graphic adult content or profanity and or sexually explicit scenarios. It may be offensive to some readers. I had no idea it had all that, but it's probably good for sales. <laughs> and it's about murder ballots, I guess it would. And of course, a lot of them are the, the unfortunate pregnant girlfriend ends up in the river. There was a student uh, went to school at Berea about the time my wife did and about the time Carol Paris went there. Uh, Carol was a librarian at the University of Kentucky and helped me write an article called Crime Song years ago. Uh, and that's what kind of got me interested in collecting this. But this co-student, and I can't remember her name, uh, had written a little paper at Berea about murder ballots, and she said if Appalachian women had learned to swim, there wouldn't be so many murder ballots. <laughs> but anyway, after that warning, he says, uh, I would like very much, before you croak, for you to do the ballots for the rest of the United States. And you see, I've been most interested in Kentucky, and North Carolina, they seem to have the best ones. But there are Virginia ones, a couple in Missouri, a couple down there in Louisiana, one in New Orleans, and one in Cajun country at Lafayette, and uh, one in Mississippi. So they're, they're here and there, but they weren't systematically collected. And I'm not claiming to have written the great, big golden book of murder ballots, right? I just took the ones I was interested in. So there are 24 main ballots that I talk about. The people in Tennessee, when we went to uh, Nashville, were upset because I didn't have any murders uh, in Tennessee. And I said, well, I'm sure there were lots of them there. You were just too clever to get caught, I guess. But um, anyway, I, there, there are lots of them in Tennessee. I don't know if I'll write any more about murder ballots. I've got other topics. But uh, anyway, this guy's interested. Maybe I'll write one just for him. The idea, as uh, the person who introduced me pointed out, these, these songs are interesting because they go back to the time of the broadsides in, in England, uh, where there would be a murder and then it, there would be a penny sheet put out about the facts of the murder and somebody would, uh, just like they say in the South, whenever something bad happens, somebody writes a song. Well, that's true just about of every place in the world. It's not unique to the South, but those British broadsheets came over to the United States too. And so again, most of these ballads are contemporaneous accounts of whatever happened. And over time, they go through a folk song cycle, right, where they uh, are passed down and the stories begin to be less specific, shall we say. Uh, the victim becomes more virtuous and the details of the crime are kind of get blurry. But many of the ballads I have haven't gone through that cycle because they're obscure. And so I have Kentucky ballads where the lyrics were literally ripped out of the newspaper. So the lyrics can be a little rough and sometimes amusing, and the music is frequently not very good at all uh, because they just borrow an old tune and put the words to it. So in several instances, for example, one a Missouri murder ballad where the entire family is slaughtered except the young uh, girl who manages to escape, uh, and it's set to the tune of Home Sweet Home. And that's not the first instances, which so sometimes the music is bad. I'm not being a musicologist. I left that to Ron Penn, who many of you know, who, who is a musicologist and wrote the foreword. Uh, the foreword's worth buying the book because it's a, a lot more inspired than probably the rest of the book is. But Ron's quite a character. But I have it divided up into, uh, what I, I begin with the real murder girls. And there I have 
the, the ballads there are Omi Wise, which goes back to North Carolina around 1808, Lula Vires, which is a Kentucky ballad. I'll talk about it a little bit. And really what's interesting about Lula Vires is that the lyrics of Lula Vires, some are borrowed from Omi Wise, so you can see a tune traveling and being picked up. And indeed, the facts of Omi Wise and Lula Vires have been morphed. Ellen Smith, which was a murder in North Carolina, in Winston-Salem, uh, which is a rather well-known. Pearl Bryan, which is a murder of a girl from Greencastle, Indiana, went to Cincinnati and met her death there. Uh, probably an abortion, a botched abortion was involved and she was actually murdered in Kentucky. Henry Clay Beatty, where a fellow in Richmond murdered his wife. So those were instances where the tradition of somebody getting killed because they were dispensable, shall we say, or in the way. And then I have a section called Girls Fight Back, where the women fought back. So the ballad of Frankie Silver, which comes from North Carolina, Frankie uh, killed her husband. It was probably self-defense or a case of abused wife, but the, she was hanged. Frankie Baker, which is the true Frankie of Frankie and Johnny, and the ballad is actually Frankie and Albert, and we'll talk about that. Uh, everybody's familiar with that. Pearl Drew, which I'm pretty sure none of you have heard of. It comes from Mississippi. And that's one of my favorites because the woman shot her husband because she was pregnant and didn't want to have the child in jail. She blamed it on her father who was conveniently passed out and from drunkenness at the time in the same, at the same locale. So they convicted him. Then after she had the child, she came back and confessed in song. Uh, everybody was so sympathetic that the judge said that he's going to let her go for time served or whatever. And Governor Bilbo, I love that name, he was not happy with that result. He said, uh, man ought to be safe in his bed. And he didn't care which one of them served the time, but one of them had to. Fortunately, they escaped and both took off and were never found again. So, so much for Governor Bilbo. Uh, I have another one, Belair Cove, which is really obscure. It's a Cajun ballad. Then I talk about, uh, so I can group those two. Those songs kind of go together. But now I had great ballads that didn't really have any common denominator. So I grouped them under more mindless mayhem. So we have the famous ballad Delia, which is down in Savannah, Georgia, where a black male child basically shoots a black girl child. It led to a ballad which has been sung by about every country music person you can think of, and some of the versions get bizarre. Johnny Cash had a version where the villain sh shoots the girlfriend with his submachine gun. I don't know where he got that. Uh, Ella Speed, which is down in New Orleans. Ella was a prostitute who was also married, which must have been interesting, and she was killed by her boyfriend, so it's a confusing melange there, but her killer was a tried by a judge by the name of Ferguson, which might ring a bell if you're familiar with the case of Plessy against Ferguson, the separate but equal trial. He was the trial judge in both cases. General Denhart, who was a lieutenant governor of Kentucky at one point and was the head of the National Guard, and he killed his fiancée. On Arch and Gordon, which was a ballad that was supposedly so obscure that nobody knew exactly what it was about and who it was about. They knew it involved a governor of Kentucky, and so how hard could that be? And I went to the Kentucky Encyclopedia, and it was Governor John Y. Brown, not the new one, but one going back to who had been a, a, civil, a Civil War veteran. Actually, it wasn't even John Y. Brown's father. It goes back further than that. Uh, his son was Archibald Brown, and he was quite a ladies' man, and he had the misfortune of getting caught with uh, uh, Mr. Gordon's wife, 
in Miss Lucy Smith's House of Assignation in Louisville. That's actually what it was called. I'm not thinking that. Out. And so Arch shot them both. Maybe we'll talk about how that worked out. Then I have uh, three ballads that involve the, the destruction of entire families, which is always a nice thought. The Lawson family murders, which you may have heard of, which was in North Carolina. The Meeks family murder in Mississippi, and then a, a Missouri. Yeah, and then uh, Batson, which is a ballad that uh, was in uh, Louisiana and Cajun country at Lafayette, which I wrote an extensive piece on. And uh, somebody picked on that, and I was picked up on that, and there's now a book about the, the ballad. Then I have Mobs and Burger Ballads, which talks about instances in which mobs were involved. So that's Mary Fagan in Georgia, which you probably heard of, uh, Nellie Cropsey uh, in North Carolina, Lottie Yates in Kentucky, and the Ashland Tragedy. So I'll try to spend some time on those. Can't to cover them all. There are two in the, and, uh, two final ones, I just call two for the road, The Peddler and His Wife, which was in uh, Harlem, where a peddler and his wife were murdered by uh, some drunks. Uh, basically, uh, one of the girls in the family had got caught stealing from the peddler, and they decided, you know, there wasn't a witness protection program, so they do away with the peddler, and of course they were caught, and they were done away with it, and freed a bolt over in uh, Virginia. I, I warn you that the, these things are loaded with misogyny, right? And uh, not that we have a problem with that anymore. And uh, I should mention, too, that the this was true of all the ballads and was particularly... Uh, evident in uh, some of the African-American ballads, which I will say have been given short shrift by the collectors. Uh, just like uh, Frankie and Johnny, I'll show you in a little while that all of the accounts of Frankie and Johnny uh, in the movies and in the plays, everybody's white. But of course that was not the real story. So that could tell you that things have gone from worse to maybe bad, but they're still bad. But uh, but anyway, I mentioned misogyny because uh, there's Robert Johnson, who was the famous blues player from the Delta, who supposedly made the deal with the devil at the crossroads and all that stuff. But I have all of his, the complete transcriptions of all of his blues songs. One of them is the 3220 book blues. I'll find the condensed lyric here just to give you uh, the gist of this when I talk about the misogyny. If I send for my baby, man, and she don't come. If I send for my baby, and she don't come, all the doctors in hot springs sure can't help her none. And if she gets unruly, thinks she don't want do. If she gets unruly and thinks she won't, don't want do, take my 3220 now and cut her half in two. Now there's a nice sentiment for Valentine's Day. What is a 3220 shotgun 20 gauge cut down to 32 inches? So you can hang it from a string under your coat, pull it out to do your real work. What kind of a life do I have that I think about this side? Speaking of only wise, we have, uh, I guess, 90 illustrations in this book, and some original art. We have a Lexington artist that's done some. This is uh, from Molly Souton, I think her name is, from North Carolina. And she's uh, an artist and a musician, plays the, the banjo and some other instruments. Anyway, she has, Omi gets up on the horse with Jonathan Lewis. She thinks she's going to get married, and of course she ends up in Deep River. And, but I, I just like that art. Common image that you see uh, in murder ballad literature harkens back to the, the old ballads of the demon lover uh, in uh, England, uh, and that would well fit that ballad too. But Omi was, uh, and there she is being pulled out of the river uh, by a local 
But this was, an, I, think, I think, around 1808. Uh, it wasn't until the 1840s that the story of her murder really uh, was memorialized um, by a fellow who ended up, uh, was the president of a local university, and, and the local university ultimately became Duke. Braxton Craven was his name, and he wrote the original version of it. But we don't know how far it strayed from the facts. The person who was blamed was Jonathan Lewis, but he was never actually convicted of the murder, broke jail, and later was arrested and tried for breaking jail. But uh, Omi never really did uh, get uh, justice. And she was an indentured uh, servant, more or less, who, who had actually had a child previously with this uh, fellow, and, uh, or with someone, and now was pregnant again. Uh, so he said he was going to marry her, and of course uh, took another path there. She ended up in Deep River. Uh, there is the Omiwise Dam. She was drowned near a mill. So there's the Omiwise Dam and their uh, picnickers. They like to go to have their picnics where Omi was drowned, which I thought was a little bit grim. One of the best versions of the Omiwise Ballad, Omiwise Ballad actually has John Lewis joining the army and then disappearing. But actually, uh, that lyric probably was borrowed from the Kentucky Ballad of Lula Myers because that's what actually happened in the Lula virus ballad. So they got conflated. That was the word I was looking for. The ballads got conflated. Omi Wise by Addie Graham on the June Apple label. You promised you'd meet me at Adam's spring. Some money you'd bring me and other fine things. No money have I to better this case. We'll go and get married. It'll be no disgrace. Come get up behind me. Away we will ride to yonder's bright city. I'll make you my bride. I got up behind him, away we did ride, to yonder deep river where the waters flows wide. Little Omi, little Omi, I'll tell you my mind. My mind is to drown you and leave you behind. Oh, pity, oh, pity, and spare me my life. Let me go a beggar if I can't be your wife. No pity, no pity, no pity have I. In yonder's deep river your body shall lie. I beat her, I banged her, till she scarcely could stand. I threw her in the river below the mill dam. Little Omi was missing, nowhere could be found. Her friends and relations all gathered around. Up spoke her old mama, 
to the rest, she did say, Jamie Rannell has killed her and now run away. Jamie Rannell's arrested, as I understand. They've got him in prison for killing a man. Jamie Rannell's in Ireland, in prison bound down. He wrote his confession and sent it around. You may kill me, you may hang me, for I am the man. I drowned little old me below the mill dam. Here we have uh, another, Stella Kinney was uh, a ballad from, uh, it's Carter County in Kentucky, and I'm trying, Olive Hill, uh, up in that area of Kentucky. Uh, Stella was kind of a big gawky <coughs> girl who we are, is said had something wrong with her mouth, so maybe she had a cleft palate or something. Her father sent her to her uncle Fraser's house to help uh, Uncle Fraser take care of his ailing wife. And they must have made quite a pair because she was tall and gawky and he was uh, short. And it depends on whether you're a pessimist or an optimist. Some people say he had one leg shorter than the other and others say he had one leg longer than the other. But it made him prone to circling so he always uh, carried a, a cane. Anyway, while she was visiting and taking care of Fraser's wife, he managed to get her pregnant. So then when dad wanted her back home, it presented a, an inconvenient uh, situation. So on the buggy ride back to Olive Hill, he apparently uh, killed her with a hatchet. Uh, and the hatchet wasn't found, perhaps he buried her, which yeah, no bad pun. He did what lawyers tell somebody not to do. Don't talk, right? And we really mean it, because if you tell a story, then you're stuck with it. So he told a story of being attacked by a gang of ruffians, and they had killed Stella and all this kind of stuff, so he was stuck with it. And of course, he might have had other possibilities at trial, but once he hold, told those stories, you, you're stuck with that story. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. And, and do they ever listen to their lawyers? Frazier was tried uh, a number of times, and, and they keep uh, two, two times he was convicted, and the cases were reversed. Uh, but uh, there were several mistrials, too, and ultimately he was convicted. It was kind of an interesting case for me because it involved some basic evidence rules and the prosecutors just couldn't seem to get it right. Uh, they had a, a, a letter from someone named Frazier, but the spellings of Frazier seem to vary, even in the court records, everybody spells in different ways, to a Dr. Stumbo. And Frazier had a cousin named Stumbo, and it asked for an abortive remedy. So the prosecutors obviously thought, this is great, we're gonna get this letter into evidence because it provides a motive for the killing of but uh, they, they never seemed to learn enough about the hearsay rule and the rules of authenticating documents to get the thing in. And that's why it kept getting reversed because it, it had been improperly admitted. Finally, they said to hell with it, we'll just try him with that letter and they got a conviction. He was ultimately a pardon. So many times that people don't really get the justice that they deserve, he was pardoned. Governor Fields, the reason why Governor Fields is famous for uh, pardoning somebody in another famous murder case I don't have time to talk about, but he had the best slogan when he was running for governor was, 
Honest Bill from Olive Hill never stole and he never will. That's pretty catchy. But uh, anyway, he was pardoned and then he never came back to the community because he would never be accepted. But that was Stella Kinney. Lula Viers was one, uh, even uh, Dolly Parton has sung Lula Viers. She called it Wooly Bars, though, because these were orally passed down. But I did the, uh, quite a bit of work on that, being a Kentucky ballad, and find, found a lot of records. This is Lula, if you can see her over there, and her cousin. And uh, her cousin was a, uh, he was a Hatfield. And Lula's mother was uh, a Hatfield, I believe, was a daughter of Devil Ants, if not a daughter, a granddaughter. Lula had had uh, one child with the son of one of the local coal uh, bosses, and uh, then he'd gotten her pregnant again, so it's another one of these stories. Believed, and I found records substantiating that uh, uh, this boy probably poisoned uh, Lula's father during the litigation between the families. So anyway, he enticed uh, Lula up to uh, Pike County, supposedly, where they were going to get married, so she was murdered in the Pike County, somewhere near Elkhorn City, does that sound right? Elkhorn City. And he threw her in the Big Sandy with a piece of railroad steel tied around her. But that didn't prevent her ultimately from going down the river, probably being dragged along the bottom and ending up at Hanging Rock, Ohio, where the body was found. And they identified her, her, her body from clothing. That's usually in those days from the shoes, because people didn't have a lot of fancy shoes. So if somebody wore a fancy dress for their wedding, or wore fancy shoes, or something like that, that was the way they usually ended up getting their seemingly positive identification. But the mother identified her body up at Hanging Rock, which is near Ironton, I think. John Coyer, anticipating trouble, had joined the army in Louisville. We had not yet joined World War I, but we were about to, right? So uh, he's in the army, and the civilian authorities go and get him, uh, and he's turned over according to the appropriate protocols and is to be tried. But there were difficulties with the case because the witnesses had traveled to different places in the U.S. In those days, getting your witnesses to go to trial would be difficult, and the prosecutor seemed to not be that interested in the case anyway. And that's one of the problems with these murders of these young girls who are poor. Is you know, it's one of these who cares kinds of deals. They're not really motivated to do anything about it. I could trace things through Floyd County. She was from Oxshire. Uh, Oxshire. Uh, that was a coal camp, Floyd County, and the prosecutor fooled around with it and ultimately uh, decided the easiest way to get rid of this case is to send it to Pike County because that's where the murder probably took place. So he transfers, without talking to the Army, transfers the guy to the Pike County Sheriff who takes him up to Pike County to be tried. Well, then World War I breaks out. They really want these troops. And so the Army shows up and says, we want him back because you didn't go through the proper protocols. And I talk about those crazy protocols in the book. So they take him away to France, and he's never heard of again. So we, we don't know whether he was killed or just stayed there as an expatriate and chumming with Hemingway and stuff, or, or what happened to him. But there wasn't any justice in there. But the point is that the way that the Omi Wise ballad that most of you may have heard on the Folkways uh, records in the famous uh, collection, I can't remember the fellow's name, it had the famous collection of folk uh, tales, but uh, there was a version of Omi Wise done by a an old fella in Georgia who played a sawstroke fiddle. It's really a catching version. But he ends with, 
John, uh, with uh, Jonathan Lewis in Only Watch. Jonathan Lewis joined the army and then they, nothing ever happened. Well, he was probably thinking of this ballad. What's funny is, no matter how obscure these ballads are, uh, you could find traces of news reporting in places as far away as New York City, Los Angeles, I mean, you was straight. So I, I guess it was the uh, Associated Press operated even, you know, in those days, has a long history, and so these stories, uh, everybody likes a good murder, the, the more ghoulish the better, I guess. Yeah, Pearl Bryan, of course, was a famous uh, ballad from, she was from Greencastle, and it came down through Cincinnati, and uh, she had had a boyfriend up in Greencastle. We don't know if he was the father or whether one of the murderers was the father, and one of them was a dental student, and we think the idea was that he was going to give her an abortion, but it was botched. They took her while she was still alive over to Kentucky near Fort Thomas and killed her and cut her head off, and the head was never found, which Badia was identified from her shoes, and uh, I th as I recall, that story was written by the guy who made the shoes, and so he's taken credit. But they are given us a, they give us a beheaded a torso over there just for, and of course it attracted all kinds of attention. People sold tickets over at Fort Thomas to see the scene, and, and it was just ridiculous. Two boys who are accused are taken to the funeral home where there's the casket, and the mother is pleading to, for them to say where the head is so she could bury it with her head, and of course they stonewalled it. But it reminded me of the ordeer, ordeal of the bear. Have you ever heard of the ordeal of the bear? If someone had murdered someone, it was thought if they were taken near the body, the bear, where the body would be, the funeral bear, B-I-E-R, I guess, that the, the body would bleed in response to the presence of the real killer. We see that in Richard III in the Shakespeare play. That's what that reminded of me. I, I guess for those guys it would be the B-E-E-R, but anyway, <laughs> they, they were convicted and hanged. And one of the legal issues was the defense lawyer had the chutzpah to say, well, you didn't prove that she was killed in Kentucky. She may have been killed in Cincinnati and all that. And the Kentucky Supreme Court was not really interested in their argument, but you can actually find that in the reported cases where they're trying to make this argument. Yeah, but nobody was paying much attention to them. Oh, that's Miss Lucy's House of Assignation. All I could find was in the Courier-Journal, they had like a negative, uh, or what should be white is dark and all that kind of thing. So that's, there actually was this place. I should probably go up and see if it's still there. But the unfortunate thing is they always destroy the cool stuff. Uh, in Stella Kenny, she was killed at the place where they used to call Bloody Rock on the road to Olive Hill because it must have had iron pyrite or something in it because when it would rain, it would bleed. And wouldn't you know, they decided to widen the road and did away with Bloody Rock. Couldn't have saved Bloody Rock. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, that's the newspaper article. They killed them both. So this, uh, I, I found extensive coverage in the, uh, the Courier-Journal, and this was the ballad everybody said. Nobody could find out where this was. Nobody could find out what it was about, and there it was in the Courier-Journal. And that was not uncommon. I found another ballad story, The Peddler and His Wife, about the killing in Harlem. There was a collector that did a CD, and they talked about this song, Peddler and His Wife, and they said, after extensive research, all we can do is discover that the peddler was probably Jewish, and we're not sure of the date when this occurred, probably around the Civil War. It was actually like the 1890s in Harlem, and there the whole story was in the Courier-Journal. You know, it's just a few minutes of Googling, and you could find it. So. That's what's great about doing research now. When I started doing this, I'd have to go to 
either use my research librarians to call somebody at the New Orleans Public Library or have to travel someplace, right, to get to see if somebody had something. You wouldn't even know if they had it. And now stuff's digitized. All kinds of stuff is digitized. And so it's amazing what you can find. And it's probably best we find it while we can. I know I have some documents from the Ellis Speed case in New Orleans. And I got it from the New Orleans Public Library shortly before the big winds came. And I don't know whether that stuff is still there or not. But I managed to get it. He found them both in flagrante delicto, I guess. My Latin's a little rustic. And what's interesting about that is he, the case was dismissed at a preliminary hearing. Uh, it was clear that he did it, of course. Well, as I say, a preliminary hearing that looks like a trial, and there was a transcript, and it was all uh, covered uh, pretty well. Uh, but the judge dismissed it, and I, you, you won't believe it. Uh, I mean, you, you know about the unwritten law. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of things they say are the unwritten law. But when it comes to husbands killing their wives who are committing adultery, it was kind of like a freebie. Right, so that's what we are uh, apparently operating with under this. Judge Thompson, at the end of the evidence, issues this remarkable order. Brace yourself. <clears throat> he says, I've listened to the evidence in this case. Sounds like maybe an FBI director summing up the evidence or something. Oh, we'll leave that alone. <clears throat> I've listened to the evidence in this case attentively. I've examined authorities carefully and deliberately, and it is my deliberate judgment that this man is not guilty in law, but that his action will teach adulterers and, their, and the adulteress when they ply their infamous calling they are standing upon a precipice over an abyss it seems a little redundant to me a precipice over an abyss into which they are in danger of being dashed at any moment the prisoner is discharged whereupon the courtroom erupted with applause and an unidentified gray-headed man who had been observing the trial every day ran up to Judge Thompson and kissed him rapturously. This is the news account. We're going, this, is, this is a bit much, right? So anyway, um, all this came to my attention through a retired Georgia chemistry professor who was trying to chase the song down and asked me if I would see if I could find it because he had come across something uh, in W.C. Handy's autobiography called The Father of the Blues. He talks about a performance he was doing in Henderson, Kentucky. This is W.C. Handy, and he was approached by a gentleman of the local tobacco-planting aristocracy who requested his crew put certain lyrics written on a scrap of paper to the tune of Careless Love. Handy accepted the invitation and got through the first stanza. You see what careless love has done. You see what careless love has done. You see what careless love has done. It killed the governor's only son. Whereupon the police arrived and stopped Handy who advised him the song should not be sung since it might disturb the members of two prominent local families. So it's funny the things you can find strung together on these, on these stories. It's at, uh, it was at, one, at 1025, 1025 West Madison. Archie and Nellie met at Lucy Smith's House of Assignation at 1025 West Madison Street for five Saturdays or so before the shootings. The husband had seen her trying to conceal a, a note that had that information on it, I guess. She was pretty sloppy about her correspondence. Oh, Lottie Yates. This is an interesting one from over in eastern Kentucky. Uh, and Lottie was, uh, her, her married name would have been Porter. That would, her maiden name was Yates. I've heard all kinds of stories of what prompted the murder, but it, the, the one that I like, uh, because it's so macabre, is that a schoolgirl had told, uh, I think Lottie was a school teacher, yeah, and told Lottie that 
she, the girl, was having an affair with the husband, which was false, but this didn't do much for the relationship, and apparently uh, they had all this trouble, and, and uh, the husband basically went crazy, and, and being separated, he snuck back in at night and cut her all up with a knife, and she died. It, it is an obscure ballad. There are a couple versions. The, the person who wrote it was the same ballad author who wrote the Ashland tragedy. I'm not sure how important that is, but what was interesting is that uh, he was in jail. He hadn't been tried yet. Oh, uh, the newspapers, one of them says, to be uh, burned alive because they put out a reward for him at the Masonic local Masons joint. They promised the old man or father that when they found him, they would burn, it, burn him alive, which I thought was a nice touch. And uh, so they found him, they didn't burn him alive, but uh, uh, he was in jail, and of course they were anxious to get the job done. They didn't want any formalities. So a bunch of guys uh, uh, hijacked a train, probably with the help of the train people. I don't know that it was really hijacking. They, and they went to where the jail was and took him out, and then they hanged him from this uh, bridge. But the rope broke, and he went down way down into the ravine, so they all clambered down and got him and hanged him again, right, to make sure. And it's called the Porter Bridge now. One assumes not as a honorific, but it's still there. Oh, the Ashland tragedy, this was a lovely thing. Um, among the images we have for you are pictures of the, uh, the three people who ultimately paid the price, although I, uh, it's a good chance the two of them were innocent. It's a case where uh, there was a brutal rape, uh, br brutal rapes and murders, and uh, one of the guys who was um, obviously guilty then turns state's evidence and in implicates two other guys who may have been innocent. And the whole uh, case is a parade of horribles because it was bad enough to have the two girls raped and they and their brother being murdered and bashed in with a mattock, their heads bashed in with a mattock. Just, you know. And then the house was set on fire to destroy the evidence, not successfully. The obviously guilty guy uh, pled guilty and uh, he hadn't been sentenced yet. Uh, he escaped the death penalty, was sentenced to life imprisonment, although that didn't work out well for him, as I'll say in a minute. So the other two are to be tried, and they were tried and convicted, and then uh, the case was reversed and sent back. Well, in the meantime, uh, while their case was still alive because the conviction had been reversed, the bad guy, of course, had testified against them, so they had uh, his testimony in the record. Everybody was disgruntled, and they were particularly unhappy when the real bad guy was sentenced to life. And so they jerked him out of jail and hanged him on a sycamore tree. So now the chief witness against the other two guys is dead. But under the laws of evidence, uh, the former testimony could still come in because there was an exception to the hearsay rule, and there's also the former testimony was admitted at trial. But it was properly admissible, but the trouble was that this guy had recanted several times. So they had his recant recantation, and he had said somebody else did it, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that should have been admitted too. But when they tried these poor guys the second time, they admitted his testimony, but the trial judge and the Supreme Court of Kentucky would not admit the recantation because they said technically under the rules of evidence, and they were wrong that uh, this could only be admitted, his former testimony could only be admitted, his prior inconsistent statement could only be admitted if it were shown to him so that he could comment on it. It's called the rule in the Queen's case, and it has no application if your witness is dead, but the judges weren't that bright, right? So they allow in the former testimony, but don't allow in the recantation. So, you know, it never should have happened, and they, they were ultimately uh, 
uh, hanged for a crime they might not have done. Also making, and I discovered that there was a, a black detective who came into the case and he had evidence that uh, the two other guys were in Columbus. In fact, one of them had given uh, stolen jewelry involved in the case to a girlfriend, right? But uh, apparently the marshal and other people in Kentucky weren't interested in anybody disputing their theory of the case. So they run him out of town. I have some indication that they actually, somebody shot him in the leg. So, you know, this poor guy. So obviously there were problems with this case, right? But the really interesting thing was they were awaiting their second trial and the people were getting mob angry. They were afraid they'd be lynched. So they decided they'd move them out of Ashland. So they called a steamer called the Granite State. And this steamer plied all over the United States. And that is the Granite State up by the Roebling Bridge in Cincinnati. It was all of the, the hall of it was later found in Connecticut where it had burned to the water line and sunk. So it got the Granite State got around. But anyway, they call in the Granite State at Ashland, and it's, I guess there's an area by the river where there's something of a bluff. And the, uh, the Granite State had come in, and the militia, National Guard at the time, had taken the prisoners out onto the boat, and the local thugs decided that would not do. And so they got on a boat with their own guns and went out and we're going to duke it out with the militia. Meanwhile, the whole town's up there you know, enjoying this great scene. The unfortunate thing about militia and National Guard is they usually don't have that much experience, and inexperienced soldiers, I know from my experience, tend to fire high. So you know what's going to happen. They're going to shoot at the boat, and they're going to shoot way high, and so there were a number of casualties, deaths even, up on the bluff among the townspeople. So they quite possibly hanged two innocent guys uh, you had the two rapes and three murders, and then you had, I forget how many dead and wounded, all out of this absurd incident, where they didn't even get the rules of evidence right. I mean, they should have to go back to school. <laughs> Frankie and Johnny. Frankie and Johnny, oh yeah, I we wanted to mention it. Um, and it was originally Frankie and Albert, and the best version is in the public domain. The real story of, of Frankie and Albert, of course, is, uh, Frankie was a prostitute, Albert was the pimp, and they were also lovers, and uh, he came at her with a knife one night, I don't know what the specifics were, and she had a gun and shot him. And the case was actually thrown out at a preliminary hearing, the judge said self-defense, that was the end of that. But everybody got a hold of the song, and somebody wrote a song, right, in the bar in St. Louis. And it goes around the world, and so the story gets embellished, and it's Frankie and Johnny, and you've heard the song, right? And uh, in most versions, she ends up hanging and all this kind of stuff. And the other thing is, the times being what they were, everybody was white, right? So they didn't get it right. Well, one of the sad things is that the poor woman, uh, in her lifetime, sued the movies twice, trying to get some credit for being the person they were. And, and she lost, of course. Nobody gave her the time of day. Everything got whitewashed, you might say. Indeed, I got so interested in this. Uh, this is a book, Classic Hollywood, Classic Whiteness, about how everything was whitewashed in the movies. Doing some more study of that, I found out that a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, Jack Kirkland, who, who won a Pulitzer Prize for plays, but he decided he'd do a, a Frankie and Johnny play, and it wasn't his finest hour. Uh, but the person who played Frankie was a Norwegian silent film star. Uh, Anne Forrest, I think, was her name. Uh, she actually was a famous uh, silent film star, 
even though she was so young and did a number of films with Houdini. He, she was known as one of Houdini's girls, nothing derogatory about it, he just had actors do movies with. And uh, after this play, she gave up show business. The play was closed down in New York. It played in Chicago for, I think, one night, and then they went to New York, and the police came in and shut it down because it was viewed as being obscene. And of course it wasn't, but it, always, it was enough that you were talking about prostitutes and saloons, that was enough, so the police came in. And some wonder, maybe Kirkland thought that was a, not so bad, such a bad thing to happen because it would get publicity. But I actually found the, uh, the record, the court records. It went all the way to the, of course, the, if you're in the New York Supreme Court, which is the trials court in New York, everybody's guilty, right? And then the New York Appellate Division of the Supreme Court is the intermediate appellate court. You're guilty, right? Then it goes to the New York Supreme Court, and uh, Cardozo didn't write the opinion, but he was on the court. And the court basically said, you got to be kidding me. You know, case dismissed, get out of here. But the play never did. The, the show never it go, did go on after that, because I guess it was really a great play. Uh, but I just thought that was really interesting. Little Frankie by Morgan Sexton on the June Apple label. trained singer for the North Carolina Chocolate Drops. Yeah, she's doing her own albums now, and she has one that's talking about uh, how Alan Lomax and other collectors did them wrong, essentially. And I, I know that from my own experience when I did the Batson ballot and found all the uh, 
old newspaper accounts of that. In Lomax's book, he says, uh, well, there was this black singer named Stab and Chain, and he's, this was just supposedly a murder that happened, but I, I, I couldn't find anything to substantiate it. End of discussion. When everybody in Lafayette, Louisiana has known about this murder for time immemorial, and when I wrote my piece, people came out of the woodwork, you know, that one of this. One of the things when you talk about these is you're likely to have somebody in the audience that knows as much, if not more, or at least thinks they do, than you do. And so everybody in Lafayette knew at that time what this was about, but Lomax didn't have time for it. You know, of course, he also said that Ella Speed was a Texas ballot when it was a new, obviously a New Orleans ballot, so he didn't do his homework when he put his books together. In Ella Speed, she's going to meet her lover who ends up killing her, and it's one of those cases where a man, a woman, and a gun, but who had a hold of it when it went off, you know? Well, if the woman's still alive, the chances are the guy's guilty, and des or deserved it, but if the woman's dead, the guy's not good. But this is actually her handwritten note that a, a boy took to when she was gonna meet her boyfriend, and it ends, hug, hug, kiss, kiss, pay the boy. And there's the actual note that was retrieved from the New Orleans Public Library from court records. And I thought that was pretty cool. So, and he was convicted of uh, manslaughter. So they must have, there must have been some ambiguity, as there frequently is. I tend to spend more time on the obscure Kentucky pieces, because I knew no, else, no one else had written on them. So if you have any questions, Jeff? I do. Um, being the friend of many a banjo player and uh -huh. sitting around when they're playing, usually Folks will come in, and the first song they ask them to play is "Pretty Polly." Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So, do you do you have anything about um, her? "Pretty Polly" almost certainly came from uh, England, and was a sort of a skeletonized ballad by the time it got here. So we can't lay any specific murder on "Pretty Polly," but of course, it's the classic uh, story of misogyny, where the guy is. Is digging the grave that he's going to stick Pretty Polly in. I mean, he's, he's, he's planning on killing her, and he's already dug the grave. Um, and it, 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 when I've looked at, in the book, I talk about various uh, anthologies and collections going way back. And uh, most people trace that back to England, but with no attachment to a particular uh, murder. Uh, what's funny about it, I, I'm glad you asked me that, because these ballads would go around. I, I discovered that. Uh, there's a, a graveyard in West Virginia that has a grave for Omi Wise because they've decided that it had something to do with West Virginia. And of course, there's no connection, but you know, the more the better. One of the ballads I didn't talk about was, of course, the uh, murder of Mary Fagan, where they convicted Leo Frank, the, uh, the Jewish uh, factory owner in uh, Marietta, Kentucky, in Atlanta. And of course, he didn't do it, and uh, we're pretty sure who did it. But uh, he was pardoned by the governor, uh, but the mob was unhappy and took him out and lynched him. About the same time, not too m much later, a version of the Mary Fagan ballad turned up in Kentucky. The writer of the ballad thought that the murder had happened in Kentucky. So there's a, a version, an inaccurate version of the Mary Fagan ballad in Kentucky. And what I commented in the book is it shows you that the ballads frequently traveled faster than the truth. Uh, so you find those odd sorts of things. Um, but I, I looked and looked. Another one that kind of reminds me of that is Little Sadie. Everybody's done a Little Sadie and Bob Dylan, Little Little Sadie, and everybody is ever in search of Little Sadie. Nobody can find it. And 
and there are a few hints that maybe it was in uh, something that happened in the North Carolina, South Carolina border because of the, the um, towns that they they mentioned, but nobody successfully tracked it down, and so, so my agents are out there. My intelligence agents are out there, but I haven't heard from them. I don't know if they're still alive or not. One of the things that I enjoyed while reading parts of the book was the meter of the songs. Uh -huh. And as I would read them, I was able to kind of sing them in my head. Yeah. And, um, and so that kind of made it, you know, really cool to. Yeah, we have the lyrics to most of them. Yeah, the lyrics um, are in the I don't have, yeah. So when you read them, it, yeah. So when you read them, you kind of the meter kind of yeah. makes it hum in your head, yeah. and, and you can you can kind of sing that yeah. that tune as you go through it. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, the Stella Kenny one always kind of cracked me up. I have a sixth sense of humor, I guess, because uh, the lyrics are literally out of the newspaper, as I show. They come right out of it. It was on a stormy night, the second day of May, that Stella Kenny was murdered. While for home she was on her way. And it goes on and on and on. The officers, they were summoned. Each one his place did fill. They found her, they found poor Stella murdered upon the Garvin Hill. And this perfectly tracks the newspaper story. She, she was carried to the city hall where she gave some awful sighs and the sight of her muddy clothes would have brought tears to your eyes. Now here's the part that cracks me up. There was her dear old father kneeling by her side, quote, with seven gashes in her head, no wonder Stella died. It's strange lyric. <laughs> I don't know, just so singing song. But the, that's an example. These haven't been filtered through the by the musicians. Haven't been filtered through the poets. So they're pretty rough, and they're right out of the paper. And that's how they made the ballads. We don't really have murder ballads anymore. We have the broken heart ballads, but we don't have <laughs> yeah. the murder ballads. Yeah. You'd think Achy Breaky Heart could at least have some dissection yeah. <laughs> dissection involved in it or something, you know, it's just, it's not as fun, is it? Poor Ellen Smith by Pap Brewer on the June Apple label. Okay, now we got another little tune. It's a real old one. It's supposed to be a true song. Poor Ellen Smith. And uh, obviously... It's been around for many years, as far as I've got in Mexico, and I'm nearly 100 years old, and it's been around ever since. Poor Ellen Smith, it's supposed to be a true song. So I'm going to do it for you the best I can. Oh, oh, oh. 
the blood spot where Ellen was found. has been Mountain Talk Monday. Crime Song, True Crime Stories from Southern Murder Ballads by Richard H. Underwood with a foreword by Ron Penn can be found online at Amazon or at Shadeland House Modern Press. Songs featured in this edition can be found on the June Apple label. Listen again by visiting www.wmmt.org or download this episode as a podcast. From all of us here at WMMT, thank you for listening.